Hey, it's George and Jess. Your journey of self-discovery starts here. All right, I always say I may not have the answers, but I know people who do. So joining me in the Moon Lounge, Emily, this is not your official first visit to the Moon Lounge, but behind the microphone it is. Correct. Yeah, I've been to the Moon Lounge, but (laughs) as Tinkerbell and Cruella. Before that, before we get weird here, that was because you were you were helping Jess and uh, Clara with either a birthday party or Halloween costumes. Yes. Yeah. So anyways, by the way, you have a fantastic uh, social media following on your uh, Instagram. And is that basically your I like Instagram the best. There you go. Yep. So anyways, but by profession, you are a doctor. Yes, I'm a doctor of pharmacy, so not a physician, right. but I'm a PharmD, right. and um, I have been a pharmacist since 2011, and I work as an ambulatory care clinical pharmacist, which is a little bit of a different role than what you would generally think right. about a pharmacist. Usually you think, you know, Walgreens or standing behind right. the counter, that sort of stuff. I actually um, do chronic disease management in a family practice clinic where I have my own schedule like a provider. Sure. And I see patients for kind of a, a variety of things, but the the core um, service I provide is medication management services. And that is basically chronic disease management. So any I can help providers manage any disease that has a lot of different meds to it. Sure. Or I can be kind of that one person, say a patient sees five different specialists and, you know, heart doctors only focused on the heart, kidney doctors only focus on the kidney. And I'm kind of that person that looks at everything collectively to make sure everything's playing nice in the sandbox. Sure. Um, But with being in family medicine, I do find that like 50% of my schedule, I do a lot of diabetes management. Um, I do all of the insulin pumps and the continuous glucose monitors. And then I would say the other 50% of my schedule um, involves pharmacogenomics, which is a little bit of a newer thing that we've been doing for about five to six years. And um, our group has really been the pioneers of getting this rolling here. And what that is, is that is basically looking at someone's genetics and using that as a tool to make predictions about how medications would work for somebody, what medications that we know we would want to avoid, and really individualizing patient care. So going back here just a step, you actually, do you do a genetics test on somebody before you decide what kind of medication you're going to use to treat whatever they need? We can do that. A lot of the time, because you know this is a newer science, yeah. a lot of the patients I get are patients that are currently struggling with tolerating their medications that they're currently on. Or in the case of like anxiety or depression, they can't find a medication that works. And so we're a lot of the time we're doing this retrospectively now. We, you know, we have the swab, we swab them, and then in two weeks I get a panel back with 28 different genes that I can use to kind of cherry pick out what medications would work better. Do you just run that through a machine or I mean how, how well, do you do that? We we actually partner with um, a company up in the cities called One Ohm. Okay. And it, the test was co-developed with um, the 
my workplace and and one ohm to develop this 28 gene panel and we can use that test to predict you know up to like 360 different medications really Mm -hmm. really because it all has to do with um when you look at medications majority of meds we take by mouth right right and eventually the meds have to leave your body there's two main ways that medications leave our body about 50 percent of the meds on the market get filtered through our kidneys um the way i explain it to patients is you know kidney your kidneys are kind of like a giant coffee filter filters out the meds you kind of pee out what's left over um we can monitor someone's kidney function and if their kidney function is not good we have dosing guidelines to adjust those medications to make sure the meds get all filtered out now where the pharmacogenomic piece comes in is the other way that medications leave our body is through the liver and there's a lot of different pathways through the liver um, that metabolize or break down drugs or activate your drugs um, or medications. But the, one of the main systems is called the cytochrome P450 system. And the reason why it, me being a pharmacist, we do a lot of this pharmacogenomic work is because in school, every pharmacist has to basically memorize with that cytochrome P450 system. There's, you know, genes or you can call them enzymes each there's like a whole family of them so when i was in pharmacy school i I thought of this i always have like these analogies of everything to keep my head straight so i always imagined i have this mansion that's in my liver and it's like this whole family lives together in the mansion right and every single drug that goes through that system you basically take it by mouth it has to travel to the liver it knocks on the mansion door and it asks to speak to the one family member that it's meant to hook up with for the breakdown or activation. So I had to memorize with every drug what pathway in the liver um, their metabolism goes through. To me, that that sounds miraculous that they can even figure that mm-hmm. out. So when I was in pharmacy school, which was over 10 years ago, um, you know, the pharmacogenomic stuff was not taught to right. me. Um, I had to learn those pathways to basically learn how to predict drug-drug interactions. So that's the main reason why, you know, we learned that. And now um, it was just assumed that everyone's family members in this mansion, liver mansion, worked at the same speed. So now we know that 99% of people, each one of those enzymes could work at a different speed. So then right there, just knowing that, um, I know that there's some people that are going to have drugs that stay in their body longer or not stay in their body long enough. So with knowing that, that's where you can start your predictions on, is this drug going to be um, effective? Right. Because if it's not going to stay in your body long enough, it's not going to be effective. Yeah. Or is the drug going to hang out too long and cause unwanted side effects? So before we get started here, one thing that, I, I had kind of anticipated and figured out just through life experience that we're all different. So different drugs will work different on different people, right? Well, ta- I talked about being genetically predispositioned mm-hmm. and you hear me talk, reference that, especially with like treatment with alcohol addiction and some of those other things. If you go back even two decades or let's say three decades, let's go back to the nineties had they figured that out yet that certain drugs, because I, I remember growing up in the 80s and there was a blanket approach mm-hmm. to things, right? It was just like, we use this drug to treat this 
not thinking that everybody's different and it may work on some people and not on others or have different effects. Yeah, so it was kind of a blanket effect, um, but what like your your really good providers would maybe do in the 90s is maybe if, you know, say someone has depression and say it ran in the family, they would ask, well, are any of your parents or your family members on a medication that's working for them? And if they really, would, and then they would pick maybe that same med because they were starting to see that clinically that, you know, especially with medications for depression and anxiety, it is a big trial and error situation right. when you try those. And now we know that it, it can be largely due to the genetic differences of how your body metabolizes those. Hence you referencing the information that you get. Mm-hmm. I got it now. Okay. I kind of see how I'm beginning to see how this all works, which is encouraging actually, yeah. right? Yeah, It really individualizes care. Right. So, I mean that that's probably one of my favorite parts of my job is I can see somebody who, you know, has been struggling for years and I give them the validation when I look at their pharmacogenomics that, yeah, everything you've been telling your provider for 10 years, you know, you're not, you're not crazy. Like this drug really isn't working. It's not in your head. Like let's find something that is more likely to work. Dealing with uh, something like alcoholism, could you look at somebody's genetic makeup and see if they are predispositioned to fall victim. I know that there is some genetic tests out there when it comes to all the different dopamine pathways that they're starting to look at. In but in my field of expertise, my like genetic studies that I look at are very narrow to just how drugs work. Sure. So that question would probably be better answered by like a genetic counselor right. that knows more of like that ju- human genome makeup. Right. Like I'm just looking at one small piece of how drugs are broken down, how drugs are metabolized, how the drugs are fitting on their receptor and how the drugs are transported to where they need to go. Right. Because it's crazy to think, and I had talking to you before we began to record here, I had mentioned that my grandfather on both my mom and my dad's side were both alcoholics, mm-hmm. right? And I find it odd that they had struggled like they did, yet after you know almost three decades in an industry and in a lifestyle where I drank pretty consistently, I just it was nothing for me to just set it down. And mm-hmm. I, so I'm wondering how I came from that line to that point. Yeah. So, so how did that, is is it just a crapshoot? Is that what it is? It could be. Cause I mean, there is a genetic predisposition for alcoholism and right. it's like fif- up to like 50%. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I mean, yeah. but I mean, you, you, you see it cause I talked to you about that. I was, I know friends of mine who I would even think drank less who struggle on a daily basis even though they've been sober for a decade or more, mm-hmm. they struggle on a daily basis with the desire to consume alcohol. And I, for the life of me, I can't even imagine what that yeah. would be like. And I mean, I guess that that goes back to, you know, their brain chemistry, their certain receptors in their brain. Well, you talked about mm-hmm. that. A lot of it, it's a deeper underlying issue mm-hmm. than just a physical addiction. Yeah. So, and that's one of the things too, um, I'm pretty passionate about, 
you know, talking to patients about alcohol use disorder and, you know, looking at the treatment for that because... Is that, is that the new term? It is because, because it, it is actually considered a chronic disease. Sure. And, and that's some of the thing, too, that I feel like will be helpful kind of destigmatizing. I love it. I like agree. Get, getting help for that. Now, there's certain criteria that you have to follow. Like there's, you know, there's a combination of... Um, I mean, alcohol use disorder is actually a diagnosed thing um, like in like the DSM-5 where you go through those diagnoses and you have to have two or more of these certain symptoms in addition to, you know, the amount of alcohol that you drink. But um, just to step back a second, what is it? Is it DSM-5? What is that? That is um, basically like the diagnostic um, tool for like mental health disorders. Is that the thing? What is that thing before you get your annual physical where you circle all the, how much do you drink? Is that what that is? Not really. Um, that is just, just questionnaires that everybody lies if on. You are like at risk for certain things. Gotcha. Like the, the DSM five is a tool that like a, a psychiatrist, psychologist, like a mental health provider would use to diagnose you with a certain mental health disorder. Okay. So it's gotcha. kind of like our, the, the grand mother, of, right. you know, guidelines and diagnoses. So you use that before you look at forms of or, or treatment. Yes. But in my, in my field as a pharmacist, I am not trained to diagnose. Okay. So that all has to come from, you know, physician, nurse practitioner, or physician assistant, because that's how they are trained. I am trained to know once I know what the diagnosis is, because someone else tells me, Sure, um, I know what drug to use. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so that's kind of where I fit. And sometimes people get confused by my title, you know, being like sure. Dr. Holm. And I always have to explain to everyone, like, I'm not a physician. <laughs> like, I'm not going to diagnose you. <laughs> you have to right. go somewhere else for that. So, but you're the one who knows which drugs god i hate that term it just sounds derogatory yeah. but <laughs> will are best to treat yep yeah. um yeah and so there's a lot of you know constant studying still like being yeah. a pharmacist is a lifelong learning right. opportunity because you have to keep up on all the guidelines and the changes and i mean um our providers do a good job of knowing you know what drugs to use but you know i have many more years of pharmacology, pharmacotherapy. So, um, you know, they do a good job of, you know, knowing what to use, but I know all the ins and outs of each one of the drugs if I want to like individualize care. Right. What would you say is the average breakdown of people that you see as far as percentage wise and what you're treating them for? Mm, I would say 50% of my schedule is diabetes management. Sure. Now that that can be more than just chasing blood sugars though because patients with diabetes a lot of the time also have a lot of like mental health things as well. Really? Yeah, because it's a very it's a hard chronic disease to have. You know, to constantly be worried about your carb intake and keeping your sugars down and you know, trying to prevent the kidney disease, the heart disease, the nerve disease, the eye disease, like all the things that come with it. It's it's a lot. Um, So a lot of diabetes management, but then the other half of my schedule is the pharmacogenomics, 
which then brings a whole slew of mainly mental health management because anxiety, depression, yep, things anxiety, like that, anxiety, depression, bipolar, ADHD, um, PTSD, that, that kind of, um, picture because 80% of how medications work can be based on your genetics. That's, that's for crazy mental health, for right? mental health meds. And I, I don't know if I should go down this road, but you said a lot of this is combined with not only treating them with a drug, but th mental, just therapy as well. Yeah. And that's one of the things too, like, you know, a lot of people maybe get the, the thought, like, since I'm a pharmacist, I'm just a drug pusher. Right. And to be honest, I don't like a lot of medications. Sure. Um, and I think some of it is because I know too much about them. Right. Um, and and I know all the, the evidence, too. So I really try to talk about the non-pharmacy things that patients could be doing to improve their health and only use medications if we absolutely have to. So medications as a supplement to dealing with the issues. Mm -hmm. I, I'm Yeah, I mean there's yeah. certain things that yeah, you need a medication and you know, if you have a heart attack, you know, there's there's certain things that happen to you where like the evidence is very clear that certain medications will extend your life and prevent hospitalizations. Yes. But then there's other medications out there, you know, especially with mental health, it's very difficult because um, and not a lot of people know this, but the studies on medications that we use for depression and anxiety with how effective they are, the studies are not that good. Well, you told me that it, success rate is about 30% and that's combined with therapy. Right. And I would say a, more than half of my patients are not willing to go to therapy. They just want a medication. And, and I brought this up. I said, since it's the combination of therapy and medication, mm -hmm. there's a good chance that that medication could be a placebo effect. Oh, absolutely. That's crazy to me. Yeah. I had no idea. So if people are under the impression that they're struggling with anxiety or depression and there's a miracle drug cure, that's not always the case. No. You know, and sometimes the medication causes side effects and then you still don't get a benefit from it. Right. You know, like you have to put the hard work in of therapy because when, that, when you say hard work of therapy, cause I've never been yeah. to a therapist, I'll be honest. So when you say that, what are you talking about? Talking about, you know, looking at yourself and trying to change your response to triggers. Right. Because at the end of the day, our triggers will never change. Sure. So what you have to change is how you respond to that's, your triggers. That, that would be hard. It's super hard. How do they get people to, I don't, I, to me, I can't even fathom changing my reaction to things. I mean, I, I realize that sometimes I overreact, mm -hmm. right? And there's a lot of things because I'm one of those kind of all in or all out people. Yep. So, but through life, I've just, I don't know, I guess I've just learned to manage it mm -hmm. and maybe even suppress it. Yeah. To a point, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we all have our own coping mechanisms that we have developed from the time we've been children. Yeah. You know, and, and so that's, that's some of it. Some of, sometimes you're lucky and you develop healthy coping mechanisms, you know, because of your environment and just because of 
who you are in general. Right. Um, sometimes you develop negative coping mechanisms like drinking alcohol. Sure. You right. know, and so that's the other thing with alcohol where I feel like um, the medical field is missing the mark here. Like, number one, it needs to be more treated like a chronic disease. And only 10% of patients who have alcohol use disorder are treated with medications that can actually help with parts of it. The other part of it is a lot of the time, most patients who have alcohol issues have an underlying mental health disorder that has not been diagnosed or um, just not treated. Right. I've, it, it, when you bring that up, every, all of the guys that I've known throughout my broadcast career and even the guys I've invited into this studio, friends of mine, have all said that. They were like, you got to dig deeper mm-hmm. than just a physical addiction yep. because that's where the problem lies. Yeah. Right. And, and unpacking that, that's the hard part. And that's Especially the thing the that older people you don't want to do because there's sometimes there's a lot to unpack. There is. You right. know, I, I always like joke and I, I Jess and I joke about this too. Like I always say, like everyone has a haunted house. That's the honest you know, to God truth. We, we all have a haunted house. And sometimes I have patients that live in their haunted house and they just need to get the hell out of their haunted house, lock it up, acknowledge it, like wave at Michael Myers up there right. in the window <laughs> and like pick a different thought. Right. Like stop it, being a victim in there. And everybody finds some way to soothe. Yeah. Right. And it's funny because throughout my career in radio, 30 years, I met a ton of comedians and I found this most of them struggle they they're they've got that problem yeah. right and this it's an outlet for them mm-hmm. right it's crazy to think most people don't understand oh they're always happy and funny no there are a lot of them have deep deep underlying issues mm-hmm. and it's an escape yep it's crazy right so people just deal with things different Do, would you say that when you talk did you say only 10 percent of people are being given treatment medication on top of just the the therapy end of things. So For when, when battling alcohol use disorder. Yeah, with alcohol use disorder, it's like less than 10% are treated with like the FDA indicated medications. Do you think more people would benefit from it? Yeah. Why aren't they getting it? I think it's a big stigma. Because they're taking medication? Well, I think it's the whole thing with Do people not I- want to? identifying that you have alcohol use disorder. Really? You know, because there's, you know, there's unhealthy alcohol use. There's, you know, um, risky drinking. Sure. Which is any, anything that would put you in harm because, you know, you got drunk. And then there's binge drinking, which both of those things are not alcohol use disorder, but they can lead to alcohol use disorder. Right. So I think a lot of people that have alcohol use disorder actually don't want to admit a that they have a problem or it just gets undiagnosed or no one wants to talk about it. And so treatment never happens. Right. And in the U.S., um, alcohol is the number one abused substance without a doubt an alcohol use disorder like if we're looking at like the actual diagnosis and you know how most people drink alcohol it's like 29 percent prevalence in the u.s wow that's crazy Mm -hmm. so it really is it's really out there and i just i just think it's something that 
people are not wanting to talk about or there is know, a stigma. Attached yeah, there to is. It, I mean, right? there's a stigma attached to that. And then I also feel like too, um, like being in family medicine, you're dealing with so many different things. A lot of the time, if you go see your doctor and you know, you mention something, they, you know, they want to help you, but they're so pressed to do the 10,000 other things that they have to do that they don't know how to attack it and they don't have the time. So yeah. then they're like, Oh, I'll refer you over here, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the hard part about being in family medicine, especially if you're like a physician, nurse practitioner or, um, physician assistant is I would probably say like family medicine is one of the hardest like doctors to right. be because I, they have to be a jack of all trades and they're always asked to do more with less time. It's funny you bring that up because a, a good friend of mine who actually went to his doctor, and I always tell people, if you really believe you have a problem and you, it's physically starting to affect you, start with that visit, mm -hmm. right? And he went to his doctor and his doctor said, well, absolutely, let's get you some mm -hmm. help. Referenced him to somebody who was gonna give him an, an evaluation. It took three weeks to get it. And then once he had the evaluation, it was another couple of weeks before yeah. they came back with results. And then they had to place him in a treatment center. Right. So it was a, I mean, takes the, the guy had hit rock bottom uh -huh. and it was a month and a half before they could even get him help. Right. And That's insane to me. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't anybody's fault. It was just how the system works. Yeah. And, and you know, you do need to have the proper workup and diagnosis from someone who knows what they're right. doing. Right. You know, um, you know, in my role, I can help treat alcohol use disorder, but it's on an outpatient, you know, sure. On, you know, I'm not in a treatment center. You know, it's an outpatient basis where, you know, you can still function in your life. And the goal isn't always complete, you know, completely quitting alcohol. And I think that's the other thing that keeps people away from getting help is completely quitting doesn't have to be a part of your plan. Sure. You know, it can be maybe at some point, but sometimes it's just reduction in the amount you're consuming. Do you think a, a, gra a gradual <laughs> step away from it? I just, I just think that so many guys struggle not all, because I tell people this, there's some people that have a healthy relationship with it as their drug of choice, mm -hmm. because it is a drug. Sure. Okay, yeah, I mean, it it's, is. there's nothing, when people try to tell me, oh, a certain amount is good for you, you can get every health benefit from that you think you're getting from a glass of wine from a handful of blueberries, okay? Don't, don't yep. come at me with that. <laughs> it's a drug of choice, and I understand that. Yep. It's okay to indulge once in a while. I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem with that, but I think most people, uh, don't want to accept the fact that it, they're pouring poison into their body, yeah. right? That's what it is. Yeah. That's what you're doing. Yep. They, they, they struggle with that. What, as a pharmacist, what do the uh, medicine that you offer people, what, what does that do to combat that? Well, it's kind of a combination of things. So when we drink alcohol, um, there's really two things that happen in the brain and and you can kind of categorize people as like one of these two people or sometimes it's a combination. So sometimes when you drink, you like it because it makes you feel good. That's yeah. like the euphoria. That's the dopamine receptor in the brain. Um, sometimes we drink because it's more of 
if I don't drink, I'm going to feel bad. So that's more of the calming GABA side of things. Sure. So, you know, you're either one of those two people, you know, if you think about it, like I drink because I love it and it makes me feel good. Or I drink because if I don't drink, I'm going to feel bad or I'm going to have anxiety, that sort of stuff. Right. Sometimes it's a combo. Now, when you have chronic drinking, you know, in if you're drinking all the time um, or just even on the weekends or, you know, you're a chronic drinker weekly um, over time, what happens is when the alcohol is gone from those receptors, those receptors are like hungry for the alcohol. So then that drives you to crave it. Yeah. So when we think about medications to help either reduce the amount of alcohol you're drinking or get rid of alcohol in general, you want to target those two receptors. Got it. So we have one drug that kind of targets that reward center, that euphoric dopamine. So we use um, um, naltrexone for that. That will help decrease cravings. And then there's a couple other drugs we can use to help with kind of the the GABA, kind of the calming side of things. So like the FDA approved one is called acamprosate. Um, And then we have some other off-label ones, like we can use gabapentin, which um, that's one I like to use a lot. And then also topiramate, which um, both gabapentin and topiramate were initially uh, put on the market um, in the 80s and 90s for seizure disorder. But now we we use them for other things. It's you know, it's funny. The one thing that you and I have common, and I've learned this talking to you over the, the past few months, but there are some people that drink because everybody else is doing it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, it's, and it doesn't even make you feel good. It's just everybody else is doing it. And you do get intoxicated. And you'll do stupid things that you wouldn't do if you were sober. Mm-hmm. You loosen up a little bit, but it doesn't make you... I, I've never understood where people get that euphoria. I've never had that. I neither have I. And I don't, and I don't, so that's where I get back to a lot of my friends and they were, they explained this to me and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I don't. And it was the same thing when they gave me opioids for my pinched nerve in my yep. neck. I'm like, I could never get addicted to this stuff because yeah, I, I can't them. stand it, <laughs> yeah. dude. I'm like, I don't like being like this. So I stopped taking them. Physical therapy wound up saving mm-hmm. me on that. Right. Yeah. I find that I don't like to be tired. Like I'm very much like. I, I call myself like a spaz squirrel kind of sure. like I like to have a lot of energy. I don't like to go to sleep. I like to get things done, all the things. And so anything that's going to make me tired, I don't like it. Right. You know, so it, drinking alcohol is just like a huge downer yeah. for me to the point where like we were talking like a lot of the time in social situations, like you fake drink. Right. Um, and yeah, so, and I mean, I haven't drank in, in a long time now, um, just for a variety of reasons, like number one, like supporting like my husband through sure. his, you know, journey. Yeah. And number two, um, I have Hashimoto's thyroid and I've done a lot of more, I guess, functional medicine, more diet and lifestyle change with that. And alcohol can really affect Hashimoto's. And so given like all the things that I didn't really like it anyway, it wasn't what doing is anything. Hashimoto's? So Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disease okay. where your, your immune system thinks your thyroid is something foreign. It's right. what attacks it. Wow. Yeah. You know, it, it, uh, alcohol, just to make a point here, yeah. I, when I had my, I, I've been on blood pressure medication mm-hmm. for most of my adult life. Right. 
And uh, my last appointment, I had been off for about a year. I want, I was thinking, mm-hmm. I'm going to start working out. My doctor was okay with it. He was yeah. like, well, mon- just monitor it, monitor yeah. it. And so for the first time, as of last month, I, I don't have to take it anymore. He That's didn't, awesome. Yeah. And, but the nurse made a point. She said, you know, all the exercise and all of that stuff that you've been doing is great, but I'd be willing to bet your lack of alcohol consumption probably contributed more to that than anything else. Oh, absolutely. Isn't that like, crazy? Yeah. I mean, alcohol, chronic use over time, and even just like binge drinking on the weekends, right. um, you know, can put you at risk for cardiovascular disease. So that's yeah. high blood pressure, um, heart attack. And then we see a lot of AFib. So like arrhythmias with the heart. Um, you can also, of course, damage your liver. I think that's what everyone, sure. you know, always thinks about with like alcohol, like cirrhosis, that sort of thing. Um, but you can also, you know, damage your like GI tract, like your esophagus, um, and increases the risk of certain cancers, especially like oral cancers um, right. and esophageal cancers too. Right. Bottom line is nothing good comes from consuming alcohol you know like you see the the memes out there saying like it's the slowest form of suicide right and it's true and i almost think that that's why because this is a statistical fact the younger generation is drinking a lot less Mm -hmm. than boomers gen x is the first was the first one that started to kind of delve into it the millennials started the sober curious movement and uh this gen z generation which they hate when i call them that but (laughs) They like to be called uh, adults under 30. Okay, oh, whatever. <laughs> well, <laughs> whatever. I don't identify as a millennial. I call myself a zennial because there's like a micro generation. Right, right. Like, like I, yeah, like I totally, and maybe it was where I grew up. Like sure. it was a time warp. So, yeah. you know. But it's, but they're drinking less and less and less. And I, I think that a lot of them have just looked at what happened in the past, mm-hmm. right? You can, through observation, just life experience, you can see what it's done. And they just don't want any part of that. Well, and I feel like, too, with our, you know, my parents' generation, you know, they were all raised with horrible coping mechanisms, <laughs> you know, so a lot of Without them, a doubt, yeah. you know, a lot of them developed coping, coping mechanisms of drinking, right? you know, and then, it, yeah. and then watching that, like my whole childhood, I yeah. was kind of like, ooh. Yeah, I know. I, I, I can completely relate to that. And I think, you know, unfortunately, and I've said this regionally we are in a spot of the country where it's a bigger problem mm-hmm. than most and i don't know what it is about minnesota both the dakotas wisconsin and iowa nebraska, nebraska. <laughs> yeah. you know it's just that those states and it and it's and i'm not the only one who thinks that because all of my friends from other parts of the country tell me that they were mm-hmm. like good god what is it about the people up there and i'm like it's, it's just i don't know it's what we do I it's mean, just the, and i don't i've said it is it winter I don't know. I think it's just we have nothing to do. Right. Well, I don't know. I start. I, I mean, I started drinking when I was like 14, 15 years old. I think a lot of people experience their first, uh, you know, encounter with alcohol at a pretty young age mm-hmm. in this part of the country. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. But I, I'd like to believe, again, and talking to some of the younger generation, they're, it's, it is encouraging to see them drifting more towards a fit, healthier lifestyle and a lot less alcohol the rise of cannabis is, and there's no doubt that that's a thing mm-hmm. and it's just going to continue to sweep its way across the country. Like anything else that can be abused. Oh, right. Sure. So it's just, again, it's the drug of choice. It seems to be uh, for that younger generation, but it's, it's interesting 
to talk to, to, to see and understand and get a better understanding of the, of the genetics involved here. Mm-hmm. Right. Because there's just some people and they, I don't know why, and I've never been able to put my finger on it, but you know, in, in an industry that was where drugs and alcohol were pretty prevalent, I, I just saw certain people that could just say no mm-hmm. and others can't. Right. And it's not like down to like a willpower. Thing. No, it's, it, it's I, I say that. It's, yeah. it's such a it's such a combination of, you know, kind of that nature and nurture thing. You know, you have like a certain predisposition from your genetics with how your, you know, your brain works and your dopamine receptors. But then you also have the combination of your coping skills and everything that you have developed and your 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 lifestyle, right. your diet, exercising, and yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot. It's multifactorial. Right. I've made uh, the observation that for some reason, and you've probably heard me talk about this, but I do not know why it is a difficult conversation for men to have more so than women. And I'm wondering when you're treating people, do Mm -hmm. you find that men are a little bit more apprehensive to be open about it? Maybe. But the other thing that I find in my visits is for some reason, I don't know if I have truth serum or if I just like create like a a space, but (laughs) I think think you create, I have patients tell me things about drugs and the things that they're doing that their doctor of 10 years knows nothing about. And, and most I'm, likely and their I'm, family don't either, and right? They're, and I'm the first person that they actually right. tell. And I don't know, I mean, I just, I feel like I just create that space. Like as a pharmacist, we're talking about all kinds of drugs. right? So I kind of lay it out there like, you know, no judgment. I need to know all the things so I know how to pick the best drug for you or dress, you know, best medication for you. And, you know, a lot of the time they lay it all out. And I, and I feel like too, like when someone like takes the time to listen to someone's like medication experience or just talk through, like, especially with the alcohol use disorder, you know, to actually talk through that, Hey, it's a chronic disease. There's this, this, and this. And the fact is like, I'm not going to you know, put an order in to lock you up for 30 days and maybe the goal isn't complete abstinence. Maybe the goal is to reduce the amount. Right. You know, and I have some things that we could do to help make that process easier. So I think when you, you know, word it that way, sure. you know, you get more buy-in because, you know, in general, I feel like there's, there's a thought like, oh, if I have to go get dried out, I have to go get locked up and I'm going to have, you know, withdrawals in a room for right. weeks and, you know, sure. all this, all this horrible negative stuff that can, and, and perhaps, can happen. perhaps it's offering them hope yeah. too, right? You know, and and, and then, it's less judgmental. Yeah. And offering like, Hey, you know, we do have some medications that can help with cravings. So right. if you're willing to work on this, you know, yeah, the medications are not perfect. Just like with anxiety and depression, you got to put work, work in too, but it could make some things easier for you. Right. So wrapping up the alcohol end of the discussion, mm-hmm. It sounds to me like you would suggest that people, if they have not, make sure that therapy plays a big part oh, yeah. of their recovery. Yep. Because it seems to be the most effective. Yep. Therapy, diet, and exercise. I mean Yeah, we didn't even talk about that, but yeah. you were you were talking about uh how interval training, mm-hmm. high intensity, right? Yeah. 
is one of the best methods to kind of combat that. Yep. Especially when, you know, a lot of the time with people with alcohol use disorder have an underlying depression and anxiety. Yeah. You know, so that's why their brain is like wanting them to feel better by, you know, using that as their drug of choice. Um, There was some recent studies out there showing that with depression and anxiety in particular, that high intensity interval training was 1.5 times like greater effectiveness um, with helping with both anxiety and depression um, compared to every single drug we have on the market. Do you think that the sedentary lifestyle that a lot of Americans lead now, just because of the nature Mm -hmm. of the evolution of the way things have evolved as far as work and uh, software development and, you know, there's a lot less labor intensive stuff, right? So do you think that that has perhaps been one of the, uh, the driving issues behind America's anxiety and depression issues. I I think it's multifactorial, but I think a lot of it is, you know, we're not moving. I think a lot of the food we have available. Oh God, don't get me started. I mean, for lack of a better word, it's a chemical shit. It is literally. (laughs) And it's very hard and expensive to eat like real food, you know, And and it takes a lot of effort to, you know, eat healthy to give you an example. And I've been, I'm guilty of this myself, but when we get very busy and we're shuffling kids from Mm -hmm. a point A to point B and then trying to manage a career and do all of those other things, it's easy to just go grab a bag of whatever is Mm -hmm. quick through a drive through, right. And feed them that because it will give them energy and fill them up. Right. And that's not necessarily the healthiest option. Mm -hmm. So that's probably again, a, a, a contributor, but interesting discussion. So before we wrap up with the alcohol end of this conversation, what would be your suggestion to somebody that says, I think I may have a problem or I want to scale back or I want to talk. What would, what would, should be their first step? Well, I guess the, the first thing is, you know, I would have them kind of really do a deep dive within themselves and try to figure out what do they really want, like goal wise, like, is it completely quitting alcohol or is it just reducing? I think that's the first question. And then like, what are you willing to do and what you want to do? Because you can't, you know, when it comes to alcohol, like no one else can make you. That's what I, yeah. You got to do it for you. You have to do it for you. And you have to be to that point where you're willing to do some work because it is hard. Yeah. Um, And then from there, um, I would try to talk to your doctor because they're going to be kind of that first rate limiting step that if you feel like you do need some sort of like medication to help you, whether it's with the cravings or help you, you know, with kind of the underlying mental health thing, if you have that going on, they're going to be like that first line person to try to get you directed to the, the right people to get the diagnosis. And, and also, if somebody is legitimately physically addicted, it can be dangerous for them to just stop right. without yeah, any you, help, you right? You could have seizures, sure. you know, and then all the withdrawals and all that sort of thing. So you really need to be assessed on whether, you know, do you need to be inpatient for this? Right. Um, there's, there's kind of three different like options. There's like outpatient treatment, which would be like someone who, you know, doesn't need we're not worried about the super risk of withdrawal and they want to like reduce or maybe quit drinking and they want some medication therapy along with that. Or there's also what's called partial hospital. 
And that's, you know, you get enrolled in a program, you're not really like inpatient where you're staying in the hospital, but you do go to the hospital every day for like half day or full day sessions where you're basically like in group therapy and kind of, you know, getting your treatment plan designed, but you don't have to stay there. Right. And then there's the, you know, what we traditionally think about, like, you know, getting locked up at a treatment center. Right. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. But anyways, it's, it's good to kind of get affirmation when, when we talk about the genetic makeup and how everybody's different. Yeah, And I think like the main thing is, is just, you know, having it recognized as a chronic disease. Right helps you know bring that stigma down yeah because because, there's a lot of people yeah yeah because i mean if you compare it to like say type 2 diabetes you know has genetic predisposition you know all of you know the prevalence it's treatable with medications like all of that falls in line right you know with same as alcohol use disorder but Again, and I, I emphasize this because it's going it's to lead into our next dis- discussion here, but there's not a miracle drug or cure for everything. No. Right? <laughs> there just isn't. Which The drug companies l- might, right. might say otherwise. Right. <laughs> but one of the biggest uh, splashes I've seen made on the drug market has been recent with a, a drug called Ozempic, which was initially designed to treat diabetes yeah. right so the class of drugs that ozempic is in is called the glp1s and we've actually had that class of drugs out for nearly 20 years really? so in my mind that's not it's not new you know because i've been i've been using um that class of medications for my patients since 2009 so is is what happened correct me if i'm wrong but they realized that one of the side effects of this was weight loss. Mm-hmm. And right? we've known that since, right. you know, the early 2000s. So who found out about that and then decided to start using it specifically for that purpose, purpose which it is not, I believe it is not FDA approved just for that, is it? Well, it is. So it is? There's, there's been medications like Ozempic on the market for weight loss under other names for years. Got it. Got so it, it kind of like the class of meds started with a medication called Bieta. And then the second drug that came out in like 2009 was Victoza. Um, and Bieta was twice a day. Victoza was once a day, all in the class of the GLP ones. And to kind of like go back a little bit, a GLP one is an incretant, incretant hormone, which is a gut hormone that we all make in our body anyway. So it's a hormone that we make and how it works is when we eat something, GLP one shows up in our stomach or our GI tract for two to three minutes. And during that two to three minutes, it triggers some things. It tells your brain, I'm eating, so it helps with that satiety feeling, that fullness feeling. It tells your pancreas, hey, I'm eating, give me some insulin. It tells your liver, hey, we're eating something, don't um, dump sugar into my bloodstream. And it also Um, help slow down gastric emptying so you can absorb your food. 
Okay. So literally it slows down the the movement of the food through your GI tract. So we make this hormone in our body already. Okay. And why these medications were looked at for a treatment for diabetes is it was discovered that patients with type two diabetes make less GLP one. Really? And so that's like part of, you know, a target to treat diabetes as well. Maybe let's give someone some GLP-1 that lasts all day long instead of the stuff we make, which gets degraded in two minutes. Sure. So that's kind of how it started. Um, And then from there, we've always noticed in the studies with diabetes that, you know, on average with like Victoza, for example, we saw that patients lost about 12 pounds, you know, in, right. in a three month period. Um, and that was all like good and great and grand because, you know, with type two diabetes, losing weight can help your numbers. And then we also saw that it lowered the blood pressure a little bit too, but we didn't know if that just happened on its own or that happened because these people dropped, you know, 10 to 15 pounds. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so, so it, then they took, like the Victoza and some of the other medications and they started working on them for weight loss. So there's some meds that are on the market that are actually the same active ingredient as Victoza and Ozempic, but they're under a different trade name. Sure. Those are the ones that are FDA approved for weight loss. So it's the same drug, same drug, literally it it, like if if you, Getting a generic version of whatever. Kind of. So um, like Saxenda, that's, you know, one of the versions of one of the drugs that's on the market for diabetes. It's just a higher dose, but it's the same exact active ingredient. Okay. Um, kind of what happened with Victoza is Victoza, or not Victoza, Ozempic. So that's semaglutide. That's the generic chemical name of okay. Victoza. Um, there's a drug called Wagovi. I've that, I've heard that okay. one. That's- so Wagovi is semaglutide, same drug as Ozempic, but it is at a higher dose. That's been approved for obesity for a, a few years. And so what happened is we had kind of an uptick in using Wagovi because some of the insurance companies started to add it to their formularies because prior to this, none of the medications we had for obesity medicine were covered by insurance or it would be really difficult to get them covered. Recently, some of that has changed because again, kind of like with the alcohol use disorder, obesity is now being looked at as more of a chronic disease versus like a willpower problem. Right. Um, So, Wagovi was added to a lot of the drug formularies, so it was more accessible, more affordable for people to use it, and then we had a huge shortage of it. So then, huge shortage of Wagovi, and then everyone was demanding it, and because Ozempic is technically the same drug as Wagovi, the drug company and some of the insurances allowed, well, since we have this shortage of Wagovi, now you can use Ozempic because okay. it's the same drug. And then that has caused like this Ozempic craze. Right. And th- well, the thing about it is there's a lot of celebrities, mm-hmm. social media stars as well, that only need to lose. They don't even need to lose. Right. They don't need to lose anything. They don't need to lose any weight, but they want to drop that 10 yeah. to 15 pounds to get that chic, I uh-huh. call it the heroin model yep. look from the 80s yeah. and 90s, right? 
And then they dropped that weight. So now it's it's created this craze mm-hmm. across the country where specifically women, mm-hmm. right, want to get thin, like almost unhealthy thin, yeah, it looks like. like rails. Yes. Mm-hmm. So from what I understand and there, what I've been reading is there are like clinics all over the country now where nurse practitioners can just give the prescription. Yeah. And also we have one clinic here in town that actually administers it. Wow. Like a, like a med spa. Really? Yeah. Wow. And and I kind of looked into that because I was a little concerned on, you know, like the legality of it because I didn't know if they were actually using like brand name Ozempic or like what was, you know, going on there. Um, so I, I have a friend down in Iowa that has a med spa and she runs her business very to the T. Like right. she's a very good provider when it comes to that sort of thing. So I called her up to kind of ask her how, you know, how is she getting the semaglutide with the big, um, you know, the shortage shortage, and everything and kind of what the med spas are doing. And this is completely legal and fine to do this. um, They're actually getting semaglutide compounded from a compounding pharmacy for each individual patient. And then they're getting vials of it mailed to their med spa. And then as a part of like a weight loss program, the, the patient usually pays about $300 a month and they go in for weekly visits to get counseling on weight loss. And then they can get the semaglutide injected at the clinic. Wow. Yeah. And that, and that's completely kosher, sure, yeah. um, you know, cause there's laws with like compounding medications, like pharmacies can compound and, you know, make certain formulas of medication. They just cannot be the same concentration as what is currently available on the market. Wow. So they can, they just have to make it a different strength unless the, the current branded medication is on shortage, then you can make the exactly same thing cook in the books. That's unbelievable. So that's how they got around it. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. So, there, there are some things that have not been brought up about these drugs, though. Right. So, I mean, a couple things like when when I am using these medications for diabetes, which I use them a lot because sure. they work really great for diabetes. They're one of my favorite um, drug class. There's always a couple things that come up with patients when they ask me, you know, because everyone does their own research. And the number th- number one thing that comes up is I read that there's a black box warning on these medications about thyroid cancer. <laughs> we hear that all the time. Okay, so th- yeah. so they, they want to talk about that. Now, what you know, sounds scary, right, on yeah. the surface, but where that comes from is any medication that is being you know, studied and possibly going to be pushed to market when, before the human trials start, they have to do trials in animals and they do a lot of these trials in either rodents or dogs, beagles, beagles. Yes. Yep. makes me sad. I know. Super sad. <laughs> um, so where the thyroid cancer warning comes from is every drug has to be evaluated for what is the lethal dose. That has to be studied. That has that's a part of you know getting a drug from idea to market. All these you know checkbox. You got to yeah. figure that out. So with the rodent trials, they were giving rodents a hundred times the human dose, 
and monitoring these rats. And they did notice in some of the rats when they were drawing their blood that they were having higher levels of calcitonin and those rats tended to develop tumors on their thyroid. So the FDA at that point, um, you know, made it mandatory that that needed to be a black black box warning for C-cell tumors associated with the thyroid. And so if your family has any family history of medullary thyroid cancer, which is a very particular form of thyroid cancer, you cannot be on these medications. Is this all out of an abundance of caution? Is that what that is? Because it's yeah. when you when you're talking about 100 times the mm-hmm. lethal dose, I'm like, my God, nobody's ever going to cons- nobody's. Ever I would gonna- hope not. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, that that's something that they found. So sure. that's why, you know, they made that black box warning on it. Right. But I think it scares a lot of people because they just see thyroid cancer and then they're like, I'm not going to be on that. That causes sure. thyroid cancer. Um, that is not one thing I'm particularly worried about with with this class of meds, um, just because the number of years I've been using them for diabetes, and we haven't really seen that come out. Right. Come up. But you, before, again, we, we started recording today, you dropped a bombshell yeah. on me that I yeah. did not know. Yeah. Explain to people what is another one of the side effects of these drugs. So one of the other things that, especially when it's more for, you know, getting into mainstream media and like a lot of young women being on these medications, something that I feel like is missed a lot um, is the fact that the the gl- the class of drugs, the GLP ones, which includes Ozempic and um, Victoza and Trulicity and Wagovi and Saxenda and Bieta and all of them are category X in pregnancy. Explain to people what that is. And so category X is contraindicated, meaning that we found fetal harm in animal trials, um, whether that caused, you know, the demise of of the baby or damage or development abnormalities, kind of all of those different things were seen in animal trials. So it's absolutely a contraindication to be pregnant, get pregnant while you're on these medications. And I feel like a lot of the time that counseling point gets missed because when we're using these in diabetes, um, I would say the majority of my patients are like in their 50s. Right. You know, because type 2 diabetes can come on in between the third and fifth decade of life. And yeah. so sometimes that counseling point just isn't even thought of because a lot of the time these patients are past their childbearing years. Right. You know, but now that's something that we need to be reminded of that if you're going to be on a GLP 1 for weight loss, you also need to make sure you're not getting pregnant. Are are the are people? I've never heard of that until you brought it up. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, do you think a lot of these young women in their 20s and 30s, they probably they don't probably know. don't even know? Because uh-uh. that was something that, like, even me as a pharmacist, knowing this, I had to like remind myself um, when I would see younger women with type two diabetes. Because sometimes that's happening younger and younger now. I had to remind myself, like, oh, you know, I need to counsel on this because of childbearing years. Wow. So is it just advised that they don't take it or you just don't prescribe it if if they're well, looking at perhaps? Well, if they are like looking to get pregnant, yeah, I would steer clear. I wouldn't yeah. even take it. Um, if they're not looking to get pregnant, I would make sure that you have a plan in place how not to get pregnant. Right. Wow. See, most... 
that again, not mentioned. Mm-hmm. That was something most people don't even know. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Yeah. It really is. I, when you think about it, I'm like, that's, I can't even imagine because the long-term implications, if that were to actually unfold like that and somebody to come back and be like, I was never told. Mm-hmm. Right. God, that's crazy. How did, why is, why is that not being made known? I don't know. I mean, really? And that should also be like, and maybe it is on an individual basis. I, you know, I wonder you would, about you would that. think, you know, by each state law, when you pick up a prescription from a pharmacy, it is a law that a pharmacist has to counsel counsel you on that new medication. Now, now can they we, can they stop and then perhaps? I mean, would it is there a period of time where they could be like? I hate to use this word, but detox their system. I would, I mean, generally it depends on which one you're on, but I mean, with like the Ozempic, with that one being a weekly dose, you know, we know one dose is in your body for at least a week. Sometimes the washout period would be longer. So if I was counseling someone that was like, okay, I'm on Ozempic, um, now we're going to start family planning. I would want them to be washed out for at least a month before they would even try. Okay. Wow. You know, when you explain the actual uh, science behind the drug, the only thing that I all that really worries me about all of that and the, and the approach to a lot of different things when it comes to drugs is our body isn't naturally producing that amount of whatever. And the GLP one. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's like, so you're telling your body to do something that it's not normally wired to do. Mm-hmm. Or, or you have or, more of a or, hormone yeah. than your body. Makes. Right. So, I mean, is, am I, do I sound crazy when I think, no. I don't know if there's going to be. Well, and that's the thing. Like right now we only have safety data on patients with type two diabetes, which we know they make less GLP-1. Right. right. So, you know, we don't have really any, we have long-term data on our type two patients where, you know, honestly, I'm not concerned about my type two patients being on a GLP-1 long-term. Yeah. But what I don't know is someone who doesn't have diabetes we have no studies on what that would do long term. Yeah. And based on like the guidelines and some of the literature I've been reading on like obesity medicine, it seems like when we use that class of drugs, the GLP ones to help with obesity management, um, right now the guidelines are saying like this is long term therapy. It's not something that you you take for three months to like jumpstart your health and then you go off of it and continue lifestyle. You that's know, what they say. Things. Most most women who have tried it and then mm-hmm. stopped gain all the way back, and yeah, then sometimes so, then some. And that's what the the guidelines say that this is meant to be like a long term thing, right? Like you be on it forever. Yeah. Wow. You know, but like I kind of mentioned, I don't know if you want to like flip to this, but like talking about like the other drug that I think is going to steal Ozempic's thunder at some point. So, okay, so when you think about how Ozempic works or like GLP ones, it, it. it works on three different parts of the body. So it works on brain, stomach, pancreas. You know, in the brain, it helps increase that satiety feeling, that fullness feeling. So that's where we think, you know, partly the Ozempic helps with weight loss because you're not going to eat as much because you can't because you get so full. Right. Then The next piece it helps with, it slows gastric emptying. So basically it slows the process of the of the food moving from the stomach through the intestines. And that promotes a couple things. Number one, you feel fuller longer. So again, less eating. And then um, you have 
slower absorption. So that's where some of it helps with diabetes that you have slower carb absorption. So you don't get as much as a spike in your sugars. And then the other part it works on, it does work on the pancreas. And this is another main thing with diabetes is it basically GLP-1 calls the pancreas and says, hey, I'm eating something, send insulin over here. So those are, um, you know, the three mechanisms of action that medications like Ozempic and everything in the GLP-1 class, that's how that works. Now, there's another newer drug on the market that right now is just for type 2 diabetes, but I think it's going to steal Ozempic's thunder because not only does it give the body GLP-1, which is that hormone, um, there is also another hormone called GIP. And GIP is a hormone that basically eats fat cells. That's okay? crazy. So we, so it like metabolizes those up. Yeah. Um, that's what it does. And so the studies with weight loss, with like comparing Monjaro to Ozempic, Monjaro like takes the cake. Because really? It's doing all the things that Ozempic is doing. Because it works on, you know, the mind, the gut, the pancreas, but then it has one more added factor that it is also going to. It actually burns fat. Yeah. It eats up your fat cells. That's incredible. Yeah. So that one, um, that's going to be the one that I think is going to end up (laughs) taking storm when people discover that. And certain people have, um, and I have some like acquaintances of mine that uh what kind of success did they have they have they have success they have it really fast but then like you know the whole old face thing yes that, that's way more prominent and then the other thing that can happen um you know with with these medications is you can have like gall pla- gallbladder problems now there's some argument about this because any rapid weight loss can cause gallstones or gall bladder problems but also these drugs themselves can cause that too wow so there's that and then there's also um maybe some risk of pancreatitis as well so you know every drug has pros and cons um but i I don't think these are not going to go away no they're not well it's just the society we live in yeah and then another thing to add on to the whole ozempic craze currently right now there are Um, places that have open enrollment to um, have study candidates come in because they're they're starting to find just from like a clinical finding that patients on Ozempic have less cravings for alcohol. Really? So So now that's the next thing that they're looking at Ozempic as a possible treatment to add to our treatments for alcohol use disorder. Right. So, I mean, everyone's going to have vitamin O. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, listening to all of these different drugs and what they do, I would just, I would encourage people <laughs> to try a healthy lifestyle first, yeah. get exercise, eat quality whole foods and get plenty of rest and, mm-hmm. and see where you're at at that point. Right. Yeah. And then I understand that I think, you know, obviously science and medicine has, has a place. Yeah. I mean, there, there is a place for these drugs, especially, you know, in obesity medicine, um, you know, especially if you have someone that, you know, it's multifactorial, you know, yeah. they have some genetic predisposition where they can't lose weight. They have some sort of mental thing with it where, you know, with their dopamine receptors and their cravings, and then maybe they're to the point where 
they can't exercise because everything hurts. Sure. Maybe they're a candidate for gastric bypass and they use something like Ozempic to help lose the weight so they can hit those weight goals so they can have the surgery. Right. You know, so I mean, it's not a one size fits all, but, you know, I'm, I'm completely okay for those types of medications to be used in obesity medicine where I get worried about it is, like you said, like the, the folks that, you know, maybe have some body dysphoria really? issues and they need to drop 15 pounds and they take it to the extreme. So the, the, the old face thing that you yeah. referenced for people who aren't familiar, it it's the strange thing about the drug itself is it attacks fat cells all over your body. Yeah. Right. So you start to uh, where you want natural filler, like in your mm-hmm. face and stuff, it starts to disappear and you get that bony look. Yeah. Right. And that can happen with Ozempic too, even though Ozempic doesn't technically eat fat cells. Right. Um, that can happen just because as we age, you know, you start losing collagen production yes. at age 26. That's crazy. So, you know, and most of these patients that are or people that are taking this are probably in their mid 30s, early 40s, 50s. So you have that decreased collagen anyway already happening. And then you have weight loss on top of that. You're going to have the old face. Yeah. Now with Manjaro, that's going to be even more prominent because it eats up your fat cells, too. Oh, man. See, I I I fear what that is going to do to our society. Yeah. Seriously. That's crazy. And you will see it. Oh, I yeah, guarantee it's it coming. because this this whole uh, promoting uh, acceptance and body positivity and all this other stuff that they preach on them, they, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth mm-hmm. because it's what they give you all the time is the thin is in. Right. It's been that way since I was Every, a kid yeah. and it's never gone it's away. It's never going to change. It's never, ever gone away. Thin is power. Mm-hmm. It, you'll hear that like in New York, L.A. and all the men. It just filters its way in. Right. It's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. So it was good to get the the skinny on exactly, no pun intended, (laughs) on exactly what was going on with that. So uh, again, before I let you go today, I have to ask you about supplements, right? Because they're a big thing uh, with the health and fitness movement. Mm -hmm. Everybody, again, just like what you were talking about with the weight loss and Ozempic and some of these other things, a lot of guys are looking for a quick fix, Yeah. right? And uh, one of the things that's really popular with aging guys is uh, TRT, which is mm-hmm. testosterone replacement therapy, which serves a purpose for for guys that are ha- have serious issues, sure. right? And it can help revitalize them, I would say. But there are guys that are getting into this fitness movement that are past 40 specifically mm-hmm. that are using it to bulk up. Yep. So not only because your body produces a certain amount of testosterone, mm-hmm. right? And uh, if you start injecting, because you your 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 GI tract can't process this stuff, right? From what I understand, it's either a topical cream that yep. you put on your skin, or you inject it in the muscle, or inject it. So does it work that specific muscle, or just no, any muscle in your body? You just have to, it has to be an IM injection. What is an IM? Uh, intermuscular. Wow. See, I did the, I'm learning things yep. all the time. Is that why guys, same thing with anabolic steroids? Yeah. Right? Wow. Yep. So it's either topical or injected. But there is a, uh, and, and by the way, as far as anabolic steroids and a lot of that stuff, super bad for you. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> the, I mean, can you just name a few of the, the things that it does to your body? Well, if you want tiny balls and right. have a stroke. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Literally. And, and I, it's the thing about it is I know guys who have said that they were like, cause 
that's like one of the things you'll hear is like, oh, it shrinks your testicles. Mm -hmm. They'll tell you, yes, yes, it does. Yep. It does, it does. Right. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I would say like the cardiovascular disease that it can cause, you know, strokes, heart attacks, blood clots, high blood pressure. Oh, my of God. All those things. I mean, that alone should hopefully deter people right. away from it. But it doesn't. No. Um, you know, yes, it is going to increase muscle mass, decrease fat. So, I mean, that's that's the whole point of why, you know, they want to get more bulked up and get more right. leaned out, but I don't think the the risks are worth the benefit. Um, and then there's also a, an addictive component to this because a lot of the guys that are going after this do have some sort of like body, you know, dysmorphia. What exactly, when you use that term all the time, what, how would you like in lay terms describe body dysmorphia? Like, when you look in the mirror, all you see are your tiny flaws that you like obsess about that really anyone else wouldn't even see on Which you. social media programs exactly. in all of us. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's, it. there's all forms of it. It's you know? weird because I've, I've, I've brought this up with Jess. I'm like, you know, for years it was predominantly women mm -hmm. that fell victim to that, yeah. but it's caught up with men now. Mm -hmm. It is. And I mean, I, I hear it from, and I catch myself oh, yeah. doing it. Right. I and I'm like, all, I, I think we're all like too hard on ourselves right. when it comes to things because, you know, we're constantly comparing ourselves to people online that it's not their real life. Right. And they're probably Photoshopped. Yeah. It's crazy. But with uh, the TRT thing, which, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of guys that will be like, yeah, that's something your bodily body naturally produces. If you start messing with the balance, <laughs> the natural progression mm -hmm. of it, you can wind up having to have that. And I've heard of all kinds like of like just strange stories on not just injections, but things guys got to like, what are they? <laughs> what's it when they stick a pill up your butt? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what do they call that? I don't know. I, I mean, in a pharmacy term, it's a suppository. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's it. That's it. But there was like, oh, I've heard doctors break down some of the, some of the things could have, the problems you could eventually develop if you're doing this just to bulk up, mm -hmm. right? I mean, cause they go, they, they get these incredible ranges. Cause from what I understand reading and then talking to my doctor, there's a, there's a wide range of what's considered normal yep. and it decreases as you age. Yep. That's just natural yeah. tends to level off once you get into your you know fifties and mm -hmm. then beyond that, it's a much slower decrease. But once you get into your thirties, if there's a rapid decline, but from your mid thirties, it looks like to about that 50 mark. Yep. Right. Yeah. But if you start messing with that, you could become dependent on it. Oh, sure. Right. And then it could be a lifelong commitment. Right. And then you have all those, you know, heart risks. Yes. Stroke risk. Um, and then, you know, with the shrinking of the testes, you yeah. also have decreased sperm count. Yeah. And then a lot of these guys also get erectile dysfunction. Yeah. Right. So then it just makes things even more miserable yes. because you're going to have an increased libido. Yeah. And then not be able to do the thing you want to do. Right. <laughs> right. Seriously. <laughs> The bottom so quality of life is yes. not going to be good just because you look, look hot. You look good, You're right? You're not going to be able to, you know, attract any uh, right. ladies. You might buy your looks, but then later it's going to be a big old disappointment. <laughs> yeah, I would say this, and I've learned this. The best thing, if you want to, if you want to embrace a healthier lifestyle, get exercise, yeah. eat quality, 
nutrition, mm-hmm. right? Consume quality nutrition and get plenty of rest. Yeah. A lot of sleep people. Sleep is a big thing. They don't get quality that's rest. That's what I struggle with. Yeah. Sleep. I've all my whole life. And I, it's hard when I talk to people about that. I'm like, I remember nights in grade school with insomnia where I would be up all night. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of struggle I've dealt yeah, with I'm my whole life. I'm the same way. I, I'm not a good sleeper. Never have been. So if I get you know, four, if I get four solid hours to where I don't move and I wake up and I'm like, oh God, that was amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm <laughs> right? the same way. And I have to stay up until at least midnight or later. Cause if I go to sleep beforehand, I will wake up at three, three o'clock in the morning. And then I'm up and That's, then, and then I'm trash by the time I have to go to work. Right. You know, I thought about that starting to stay up a little bit later. Cause I usually put, when we put the kids to bed, I, I try, I'm on this schedule now, like, okay, between nine and nine 30, Mm-hmm. then I'm up at three o'clock in the morning yeah, and then I'm super tired again by the time. So yep. I, and I, or do something when I get up at 3am, mm-hmm. right. Rather than just lay there and stare at my phone. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, well, it was good to have you in. We've been wanting to do this for a while. Finally, we found some time. Mm-hmm. And, but now that we've got you, uh, in the Rolodex, yeah. <laughs> we can always have you back. Right. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Dr. Emily Holmes. So thanks for stopping by. And, uh, well, again, we will have you back because there's a, without bringing them up because I'll, then I'll get into the discussion. There's a, a million other things I could I could start to talk about, mm-hmm. right? So we'll, we'll have you back. But thanks for stopping by. And uh, Jess and I will be back tomorrow morning with another episode.